Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial 1-855-625-8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website and follow the link there. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages, and you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. The History of Lynn The shoemakers of Lynn, Massachusetts' lives were very different to those of nearby Lowe textile mill workers. In Lowe, large-scale industry had arrived all at once in the 1820s, whereas Lynn and nearby towns of Marblehead and Salem had a tradition of workshop shoemaking dating back to the 17th century. In 1852, the first treadle sewing machine arrived in Lynn. 20,000 shoe workers abandoned their workbenches for three months, the largest and longest work stoppage in pre-Civil War America. Originally, the shoemakers were the males of the family making the soles while their wives sewed the uppers. The introduction of the treadle sewing machine also started factories in Lynn for making shoes. This brought on a position of work schedules, supervisors, oversight. It also brought about standardized shoe sizes, boxes to protect the product. By 1860, only 25% of the shoe workers were Lynn natives, and many of them had been forced out of business to work in the factories. This brought dramatic economic and social changes to Lynn. The difference between Low and Lynn is that Low Industries was concerned about appearing as an industry who cared for its employees. Lynn was more concerned about the challenges of industrialization and ensuring levels of production being met. Lynn became one of the first communities in New England to enforce a total prohibition against alcohol. Residents could no longer buy on credit. Authorities enforced compulsory school attendance. The town grew with the affluent buildings, summer homes, but the affluent made it obvious they did not want anything to do with the town residents. 
This filled up a pedestrian Lynn until the later part of the 1850s when the nation entered a recession. The Lynn factories announced wage cuts. Outraged workers seen this as the factory's way of permanently degrading wages, so they went on strike, demanding a standardized wage. During the strike, violence broke out. The next day, 30 Boston police arrived. They were met with hisses, rocks were then thrown, and the police responded with billy clubs. The next day, the Boston police did not return. The strike caused a great division in the strikers, the division being between the male workers and the female workers. The men demanding that the female support wage increases for the men well, not demanding one for themselves. The strike ended with no real change, but raises did come as the company sold over 600,000 pairs of shoes at a higher rate than if there had been no strike. Also because of the Civil War, the government ordered boots and other leather goods for the Union Army. Due to the war, northern industries expanded and the labor movement grew with it. Large monopolies took shape in oil, steel, and sugar. As economic doctrine of laissez-faire allowed a concentration of wealth and power, the likes of which the country had never seen. In 1866, the first National Labor Federation was created, the National Labor Union, by William Silvis. Silvis pushed for the eight-hour workday and in 1868, the federal government said the workday for workmen and mechanics in the Federalist arsenals and navy yards to eight hours, although private contracts still allowed employers and employees to set work hours agreed upon. Employers could reduce wages and cram more work into the shortened day. The NLU established the first permanent lobby in Washington. The NLU felt that the Grant administration was not enforcing the shortened day. They made a forceful complaint, and Grant in 1869 decreed that the eight-hour day was affirmed. The NLU broke new grounds in its inclusion of women and blacks in its membership roles. Not all members shared Silvis's idea. Silvis held to his beliefs. This also brought about a conflict in the NLU members about women's suffrage. And although Silvis NLU wanted to include blacks in the ranks, he and the NLU was attacked for promoting the division between blacks and whites and eventually asked the black members to start their own organizations. In September of 1869, at the Avondale Anthrite Coal Mine in the mountains of eastern Pennsylvania, a tragic fire at the entrance occurred being a single-entry mine, the miners were trapped. Frantic attempts to rescue the miners failed, and 179 miners died. John Sinai, an Irish immigrant who had come to the area during the Civil War, was one of the only Union officials on the scene. He had founded the Workers' Benevolent Association, the WBA, the area's first miners' union. Sinai roused the crowd of rescuers by saying that the mine owners must be compelled by law to what they would do for themselves to do for their workmen. The senator from the state, having previously sided with the mine owners, knew his career was over, sided with Sinai, pushing the Mine Safety Act of 1870. 
Sine and the WBA created the first miners' hospital in Schuylkill County, arranged for union funds to pay for sick or injured miners or their burial costs, and supported the widows and families of men killed or stricken, also enforcing the state's eight-hour day law, and worked to end the practice of paying miners with scrip. During this time frame, an Irish fraternal order was becoming prominent in the region. The ancient order of Hibernians, the AOH, in the WBA, the Irish tended to be the most outspoken, most defiant, pushing the Union to take strong positions. Many felt that the AOH had ties with the ruthless Molly Maguire gang. The original Molly Maguire was an Irish rebel and anti-landlord vigilante. It is said she had a pistol strapped to each of her legs. Molly may have been just a legend, but her inspiration was brought to the U.S. with immigrants. Her name became an euphemism for any mayhem or violence suspected of having been done by rebelous Irish. The area being desolate with the small mining towns linked by lonely mountain roads were ripe for tales of head bashing by Molly McGuire's. This rebellious spirit moved into labor matters too. In December 1862, a group of Molly McGuire's entered a mine, roughed up scabs, and shut down the company store. But the Mollies also took advantage of the miners, usually robbing them on their way home from a late shift. WBA brought about a period of stability between the years of 1863 to 1867. There had been 50 unsolved murders, but crime had fell sharply during the years the WBA was operating. 1868 to 1874, the highway being in 1870, when the WBA and the Regional Operative Association signed the nation's first written pact. The WBA represents 85% of the region's coal miners, making contract uh, was huge. But Franklin B. Gow, the owner of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, wanted no problems with the WBA or the Molly McGuire's. Gowen purchased a substitute to take his place in the Civil War. Gowen bought several mines by using landholding companies as the state charter did not allow the railroads to own coal mines. He blurred the lines that separated the WBA and the Molly McGuire's. He hired Alan Pinkerton of the famous Pinkerton Detectives Agency to route out the Mollies. Alan sent his best agent, James McParland. He was accepted in the AOH in 1874. Gowen announced a 20% wage cut that December in mines he controlled. On the first day of 1875, WBA went out on strike. Management fought back with scabs and railroad police arresting 20 WBA leaders on trumped-up charges. The bosses attempted to starve the strikers and their families that winter during the course of what became the known as the Long Strike, which lasted from January through June 1875. The WBA finally weakened and collapsed. McParlin turned over 300 names that he 
claimed were Molly McGuire's, and shortly after the trials began, that the railroads pushed through the courts with many convictions. 1873 struck with a power America was not ready for. The failure of the banking house of J. Cook and Company and other financial firms. Panic effect traveled outward from the East Coast, holding construction and slowing manufacturing. In 1870, there had been 33 national unions. By 1877, only nine. In 1870, membership was at 300,000, down to 50,000 in 1877. Common practices of the railroads were huge delays in paying salaries, offering only scrip usable at company stores, no sick pay, and even fines for time missed or days off. They forced employees to sign contracts that they will follow company rules and not hold the company liable for any injuries. But labor had an advantage over their railroads. Their property covered vast lands, most of it open land with a strict timetable to keep. The owners also could not keep their equipment safe from those who knew best how it ran and how best to sabotage it. An example of trouble for the reading came from the Erie Railway in March 1874 when they fell behind paying their workers at its machine shops in Sasquan Depot on March 25th. The day upon the Erie had promised the wages would be paid. The workers agreed to a 10-day delay but warned that if they were not paid, they would stop working. Ten days later, the company could not pay, so the workers gave them 24 hours to pay, and if not, they would halt trains, seizing the company's property and chasing off the managers. So Erie fired the leaders of the strike. The workers responded by attacking a number of locomotives, disabling or detouring them into a roundhouse leaving 1,000 freight cars loaded with goods stranded on adjacent sidings. Some trainmen removed crucial parts from the locomotives, holding them hostage hidden somewhere in the town. The sheriff, M.M. Helm, sided with the strikers, refusing to remove the strikers from the Erie Railroad property, or calling in the state militia to help. The governor told the company that only the sheriff could make a request for militia help. Eventually, due to pressure from the railway, the sheriff eventually requested help from the militia. 2,000 soldiers bearing 30 pieces of artillery arrived, ordering everyone from the railroad property. The workers left, and the company offered to rehire all workers except the strike spokesman. When the workers refused, the company threatened to move rail shops to another town. The businessmen quickly stopped supporting the strikers and slowly the workers returned to their jobs. In 1877, the Supreme Court upheld the right of the states to regulate private enterprise used by the public, resulting in the railroads would no longer alone decide the highly profitable rates they charged for the storage and transport of goods. Facing loss of revenue from this court decision, the major railroad owners, John Garrett, William Vanderbilt, Hugh Jewell, 
and Tom Scott held a series of meetings in which they worked out ways to pull their freight schedules and adjust shipping rates for their mutual advantage. They also discussed the need for wage cuts and how any ensuing strikes might be combated. They adopted a pooling scheme that went like this. One company would cut wages, the others would cover the shipping of goods for the one until the strike failed. The next company would reduce wages, and so on. Two weeks later, the Baltimore, Ohio announced a 10% wage cut, the second since the fall of 1876, and cutting working hours. After several hours, the crew of a cattle train stopped working, leaving the live cargo stranded. When management sought out other workers to replace the crew, the workers announced the yard was to be frozen. They uncoupled the train so they could not be moved. Mayor A.T. Schultz arrived and ordered three men to be arrested, but the police were surrounded and made to release the three men. The governor ordered the militia to secure the B&O yard immediately. The next day, the militia tried to move the car, but no engineer would help. They eventually got it moving, but a striker pulled a switch. He was confronted by a militia man. The striker pulled a pistol and wounded the militia private, who returned fire along with other. And the strikers, some who were armed, firing on the militia. The result was the militia having enough and many just walking away. Frustrated with the militia, the rails demanded that the governor demand federal troops. The newly installed Hayes, winning on a platform of ending Reconstruction, felt he could not put federal troops anywhere in the South. But to get the rails moving, he did order 300 troops in. The troops were able to get trains through the town, but no B&O employees would move stranded trains. The trains passing through the town often ran past striking sympathizers who threw rocks at them, blocked tracks, and occasionally had skirmishes with the crews. The railroad management wanted to prevent the strike affecting the employees at Cumberland, a key junction in western Maryland, so asked the governor to provide armed assistance. But he was afraid of using local militia again, so he ordered two regiments of the Maryland National Guard. They marched through town at quitting time and were cheered until the reason they were there spread through the crowd, at which time the crowd started throwing rocks along with any handy missiles that they found. The guardsmen quick marched and broke out at a full run to the depot. As the second regiment marched into town, they faced a crowd of 1,500 angry people throwing rocks and bricks at them. About one half of the 150 soldiers deserted. Some of the remaining fired their guns into the air, but this was ineffective. So they leveled their guns at the crowd and fired, killing 10 men and boys. They also ran to the depot, but the station was soon surrounded by the mob, trapping the governor, state officials, and the National Guard officers. The next day in Pittsburgh, the crews were ordered to start double headers, using two locomotives and 17 additional cars per train, reducing the need of two crews. The employees refused and one flagman was asked to get a train moving. He refused, saying it was a matter of bread or blood. 
stating he, he could go to jail, where he would get bread and water, and that was about all he could get now. At first, the efforts by local authorities to contain the situation was comical. Due to layoffs, only eight police officers could respond to the train yards. The militia unit showed up only to stack its weapons and started talking to the strikers. The fact that the strike was not organized by a union, the trainmen's union wanted to organize all railroad men under one flag instead of by the job. Their demands was no double-heading restoration of wages to wages received prior to June 1st, rehiring of men dismissed for strike activities, and equalization of pay for certain job categories. City officials ordered 600 troops of the 1st Division of the Pennsylvania National Guard to Pittsburgh. As the train entered, the outskirts of the damage was obvious. Broken windows and debris covered the rooftops of each car. The welcoming was just as hostile when the troops came on a crowd of 6,000 strikers and spectators at the corner of Liberty Street and 28th. They were hit with all kinds of things. The troops fired into the air, then into the crowd, mowing down scores of people and killing 20, including an 18-year-old militiaman. The wounded include women and children. The National Guard made it to the train yard and took refuge in the roundhouse. The crowd captured the soldiers' rations wagons. Roundhouse lay at the bottom of an incline. The strikers set freight cars on fire and rolled them down the incline. By Sunday, the roundhouse was on fire and had to be evacuated. The truth made it to the arsenal safely. The crowd rioted, destroying two square miles of the city. This became known as the Great Strike of 1877, causing more violence and turmoil today in peacetime American history. Strikes started everywhere and in any industry. Authorities could not stop the spread of this strike, even with hired thugs operating as private police forces. The takeaway on this should have been for the companies, it is much easier to deal with organized labor groups, but they did not. Instead, they attacked organized labor in the papers. The 1877 Great Strike was most effective in St. Louis where racial solidarity was achieved and the strikers rallied around the idea that the workers had the numbers and if they stood together, they could rule the world. The St. Louis employers realized the workers did have the numbers and stunned by the workers' militancy agreed to some wage increases, shorter hours, without loss in pay, in a double-cross, these offers were rescinded after the U.S. Army arrived. Martial law was declared, and 30 strike leaders were arrested. The 1877 strike is hard to understand, let alone explain. 80,000 rail workers striking is staggering, but so many other workers and the unemployed supported the rail workers' effort. It is worthy to note that labor movement was taken so serious that in response to the National Guard was expanded, improved coordination and readiness. With the support and urging of leaders of commerce, armories were built in concentrated urban industrial areas. Although the labor movement lost this strike, the strike changed perceptions of laboring people and the poor. 
a new appreciation of their strength and the power of the strike. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights.com at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <music>